Nobody got time for articles these days, so I'm doing a video version of how I fixed my chronic back pain. If you're listening on iTunes, there is a YouTube version that you can check on our channel, so make sure to subscribe to that so that you can see all of the diagrams and explanations on there. So if you have struggled with back pain, then this is the video for you. I'm going to cover the basic truths of back pain, uh, what's my background and my struggle with it, the main approaches to back pain, the main kind of models that are predominant right now, myths, what is the pain cycle, what can turn basically a two-week job of back pain into a two-year job and how you can break that cycle, and some recommendations as well. So you've probably been told something like this. So chiropractors might say, oh, your back's spasming up. Okay, you better ice it ASAP. Osteopaths say, if you ever round your spine, then I'm afraid you're going to die. Rehab specialists, oh, you've just got weak abs, you just need to do more planks. Neurosurgeons might be like, oh, well, we, we could operate, but um, it might make it worse. Physiotherapists, nothing wrong with you, it's all in your head. Kinesiologists, your back pain is simply because your root chakra is misaligned, which is overactivating your left inferior oblique that causes a slight anterolateral shift of your pelvis when you walk, and you just need to wear more of the colour brown. Um, so that it resonates with your chakra and just take this expensive herbal liver tonic, which I happen to sell. So yeah, thanks for the advice, bro therapists. You absolute bunch of knobs. None of this has been helpful. So if you're struggling with back pain, you'll probably know that you'll have been told a similar kind of bullshit cocktail, and it's likely got you nowhere with your pain, but done wonders for lightening your wallet. And so clearly your current approach isn't working, and you're not alone. Basic truths of back pain. Rob Wilcott says, I've been studying back pain for the last 50 years, and if anyone says that they know where it comes from, they are full of shit. Back pain is poorly understood by the health sciences. Each field has its own little piece of the puzzle at best, and there is an entire industry founded on selling devices and miracle cures for your back based on extremely fishy evidence. These cures are no better than placebo, but they will cost you a lot more. So while underlying back diagnoses may differ, there are several common features in a typical course of back pain. And the good news is that these features provide a trail into resolving it for you. So you need to take ownership over your recovery. No therapist can fix you with a triumphant crack. And the road to recovery requires a multifaceted approach and consistency. Eric Cressy identified five common problems that people like us face with back pain. Number one is that many got subpar outdated physical therapy. They were just as concerned about maintaining a training effect while injured as they were about actually fixing the injury. They lived and died by their diagnostic imaging of MRIs or x-rays, but they paid little attention to what the relationship of those scans were to the symptoms and functional deficits that they had. Most people sought to learn more about their injuries so that they could be more informed consumers in dealing with doctors and therapists, but they wound up more confused because of the varying options in the field. They were looking for direction on how to progress back into regular training, but all that most of them could seem to do is get contraindications from their clinicians, like don't do this, don't do that. So while I can't diagnose your specific issue, I've been round the houses with my own back pain and several of my own clients in person and offline have been able to fix their pain too. This article will hopefully 
save you the journey of dead ends and help you to claim your life back. So my background, you might be thinking that if the experts haven't nailed the pain, then who is this presumptuous swine with fine rhymes opining on the spine? I am speaking foremost as a patient who just happens to be trained as a doctor and a sports massage therapist, but I'm sharing my experience of chronic radicular back pain. Professionally, I have treated several clients with back pain as a sports therapist with the approach that I'm going to cover. But ultimately, this journey has been born out of a tearfully obsessed personal need to get out of pain myself, which turned into an intractable curiosity to get to the bottom of such a common but poorly managed pandemic. So I truly understand what you're going through. The physical pain, the existential frustration and the endless chase for an answer amidst murky evidence and conflicting recommendations. Being fobbed off by health professionals and feeling like you're just going to be in pain forever. And the pain itself is so axial, it's so inescapable and right up in your grill. It's like Satan, the Prince of Darkness himself, has skewered you with his fiery poker to get into the very axis of your being. So I've had chronic, severe, flexion-intolerant back pain for about eight years, following a gymnastics injury when I was 19. And I thought that I would carry it to my deathbed. Flexion intolerant, by the way, is when you're rounding the spine and that's what reproduces the pain. What happened was the deeper down the rabbit hole that I went, the more I saw that the mainstream approach has often got the whole thing backwards. I received a wacky range of diagnoses from quadratus lumborum tear to weak abs and glutes, facet joint syndrome, psychosomatic, told you just need to have a positive attitude, uh, poor activation of the left internal oblique, were a few of them. And as my understanding grew and my medical training progressed, I started to see through the fanciful language of these diagnoses. So to pick through a few of them, a torn quadratus lumborum is an extremely unusual injury to sustain from gymnastics. It's more the kind of pattern you'd see from someone being hit by a car. And even then, it wouldn't produce this kind of flexion-intolerant back pain, nor would a soft tissue injury produce years of persistent pain. Remember, a broken femur can take two to four months to heal. So, poor diagnosis. The next one was weak abs and glutes. So if that's true, then just send me to the labs right away because I'm a human marvel. The miracle man who deadlifted 250 kilos with weak abs and glutes. So also poor diagnosis. Facet joint syndrome, typically associated with extension intolerance. So that's pain when arching the back. Poor diagnosis. And psychosomatic. For a 19-year-old competitive weightlifter and gymnast presenting with sudden onset back pain following a clear mechanism of injury with no psychiatric history. Wouldn't be on the top of your list, would it? Poor diagnosis. So every clinician I had seemed to have their own pet diagnoses that they try and thumb everyone into. And the key to being a good clinician is looking at the patient in front of you, not simply what you expect to see. The physio who only works with the elderly thinks that you have weak abs. The physio who's watched a couple of Peter Sullivan videos and thinks that all back pain is now psychosomatic. The new age therapist thinks that your energy is out of alignment. The biomechanics expert thinks that it's all about your glute activation. The chiropractor thinks that everything down to including asthma and bacterial infections are just because of spinal subluxations. 
The GP checks to rule out red flags, and if not, prescribes you some paracetamol, sends you on your merry way. So do you see the pattern here? Every clinician means well, but they have a certain set of tools in their box. And this is why you need to take ownership over your pain. Don't get sucked in by any of the explain-all theories, as tempting as they might be, because it is a lazy thinker's trap. Meanwhile, during all of this, I couldn't train. I couldn't even put on my socks. And it was a disabling pain that I was desperately looking for relief for. I particularly didn't appreciate being dismissed as an attention-seeking hypochondriac. So by 2015, I had no answers and I'd accepted that I'd just be in pain forever. Stupidly, I trained through it whenever I could and I would even compete through the pain, but the episodes were starting to become more and more frequent and more and more disabling. The pain was also starting to spread from central lumbar pain into my hips and into my leg. And by this point, I was floored for a few days every couple of months, like literally unable to stand, having to crawl to the bathroom and just not a functional human. And I was running out of ideas. I had tried, among others, back pain, actipatch, like an electromagnetic thing, uh, kinesiotaping, stretching, lifting without a belt, lifting with a belt, bed rest, hot baths, muscle relaxants, the full rainbow of painkillers, chiropractors, ART, icing, massage, osteopathy, acupuncture, and death by foam rolling. None of which seemed to provide any kind of lasting improvement. One morning, after I had an allergic reaction to some Chinese food, I'll revisit that in a moment, I was awoken by about 5am, crying like a little girl in agony with my legs on fire. Um, I crawled to the walk-in centre, which I didn't see the irony of at the time, uh, for an emergency appointment. The GP gave me some more painkillers, but looked back through my history and just said, something's not quite right here, like you shouldn't be experiencing this at your age. He ran a blood test for HLA B27, uh, which is f to look for ankylosing spondylitis and other inflammatory arthritides, um, and referred me for an MRI. The blood test came back negative, but the imaging revealed a posterolateral disc bulge at L5-S1, and it was, the, it was at the same nerve root level that matches my symptoms. To save on health resources, back pain is often assumed to be innocent until it's proven guilty. And this is kind of the double-edged sword of UK healthcare system compared to the over-investigative style of the US healthcare system where you could come in with a cut on your finger and you'd end up getting a CT of your head, thorax, abdomen, pelvis. And we actually discussed the pros and cons of the different healthcare systems with Kamal Patel from examine.com on our podcast if you want to check that out. Paul Ingram says that the evidence actually shows that most back pain has nothing to do with tissue damage. But as with clothing or political trends, we tend to vacillate between the prevailing viewpoints. On one side, there's this overly mechanistic approach that all back pain is down to tissue damage. And when they find that that doesn't explain every single case, the reactionary perspective overshoots. And we say, tissue, what's that? So the former produces false positives, the latter produces false negatives. The reality, of course, lies in the middle. So you need to assess the patient in front of you and not just treat a rule of thumb or the fashionable ideology at the time as the concrete truth. I happen to be a false negative. So heavily pregnant, but just told that I was fat. This really should have been flagged up earlier in my opinion. You've got a young fit male 
with no other musculoskeletal or psychiatric history, clear mechanical risk factors, competitive powerlifter, gymnast, sudden onset pain with clear mechanism of injury and pain lasting more than six months with a clear radicular focal nerve root symptoms. So when imaging was eventually done, it revealed the nerve root compression that precisely matched the distribution of pain and symptoms, what kind of makes sense. What happened next was that I was admitted to hospital uh, for eight days with an infection. And during my stay, I experienced the worst episode of pain that I'd ever had. Luckily, they stuffed some diclofenac up my bum, magic stuff, by the way, and things settled. When I tried to stand up later that night, though, I slumped to the floor. My left leg wasn't working properly, and I'd lost sensation down the leg across the S1 dermatomal distribution. I was then sent for another MRI, which showed that the disc bulge had worsened. I don't have that second image to hand, but it was reported as comparison made with external MRI previously dated. The appearances have worsened since previous scan. There is now a large left L5-S1 disc extrusion and possibly sequestered fragment compressing the transiting left S1 nerve. No significant further disc bulge or stenosis. As before, there is a moderate non-compressive loss of height in L3, L4 and L4, L5. Conclusion, S1 nerve root compression. Most likely, the cause of this exacerbation, in my opinion, was the narrowing of the nerve root space precipitated by prolonged bed rest, systemic inflammation, and from the infection. So for the next six months, I had lost plantar flexion of my left foot, so I couldn't extend my foot, and I developed a bit of a pimp limp. I couldn't walk properly, let alone return to gymnastics or lifting, and I ended up going on a 10-day Vipassana retreat straight after hospital, where I just stewed for days thinking about my new life as a disabled person. The prospect of having to get my car adapted to have the brakes on the steering wheel. The good news is that the data actually shows that larger disc bulges have a better recovery chance than small ones. And now the sensory motor symptoms have 90% reversed for me and my pain is a thing of the past. So after putting off writing this post and delivering this to you for a long time, I kept having requests to publish it and I feel like it's my duty to cover the lessons and strategies that I've learned to fix your back pain. So rest assured, I was not the typical cause of back pain. And if you're suffering from pain right now, statistically, the future is bright for you. Typically, mechanical back pain resolves on its own within six weeks. There are a few schools of thought that come into and out of fashion. They all carry a sliver of truth but it's not the whole picture. And really it's the combination of factors plus a pinch of bad luck that turns a back tweak into a chronic pain in the ass. Understanding this will help you to unravel your own pain and get you onto the road for recovery. But first we need to get clear. Stu McGill says there is no such thing as non-specific back pain. The cause just hasn't been discovered yet. So clinicians blindly shotgunning treatments in the hope that something sticks, suggests that they don't really know what's going on with the pain. Once we have a clear pathophysiological mechanism, we can orient and target the treatment around a verifiable, verifiable model. Therapeutic eclecticism is a sign of diagnostic incompetence. John Sarno. Back pain often has three parts to it. So the predisposing factors, the trigger, which is the precipitant, 
and then the thing that keeps it in existence, the perpetuating factor. Predisposing factors can include your anatomy, your posture, your activity, your risk factors. The precipitant, the trigger, is often mechanical. So people will often say, oh, I tweaked my back picking up the kids or deadlifting or gardening. And the perpetuant is normally a combination of mechanical and psychosocial factors. Hence uh, the, the ugly term biopsychosocial model of back pain. So poor movement patterns irritating the initial injury, avoidant behavior creating the fear avoidance cycle. And we're gonna cover all that in a second. But first, the mechanical model. Stu McGill is the BNOC when it comes to practical management of mechanical back pain in athletes. And it's worth, worth checking out his books. Um, so while there are medical genetic causes of back pain, inflammatory arthritis, malignancy, infection, cysts, Kundalini syndrome, trauma, we're just discussing the run-of-the-mill form of back pain in this. So predisposing factors for mechanical pain, a risk factor that puts you at higher risk of pain. So things like family history, risky activities, weightlifting or manual labor, training or movement habits that create abnormal length tension relationships in the muscles. So for example, the imbalance between your anterior and your posterior core, um, which lead to more muscle tension and eventually repetitive strain and pain. So are you at risk? Well, if you follow us, you likely lift weights, and lifting weights is a predisposing factor. Flexion intolerant pain is more common in lifters who spend more time in a loaded anterior tilt position. So things like squats and deadlifts and their variations. Lordosis, monkey butt posture, arises from hypertonic lumbar extensors, tight hip flexors, producing this abnormal front to back length tension relationship. Someone with tight hamstrings might form a compensatory lumbar kink under load where the, the lower back flexes or rounds. And this is where the hamstrings are not flexible enough to accommodate a deadlift start position, for example. So why don't all lifters, all weightlifters herniate a disc? It's just a game of risk. So just because you cross the road doesn't mean that you'll get hit by a car. Precipitating factors. So McGill is known for the life cycle theory of vertebrae. It's the idea that a spine can only undergo a certain number of flexion cycles in its lifetime before it gives out. So moving in a way that puts a disproportionate amount of flexion load through your spine is wasting valuable spinal capacity. So this includes daily movements, but also lifting technique. And if you're injury free, it's just accelerating that aging process. But if you have an injury, it's stopping you from healing. According to Stu McGill, Having bad spinal habits, so moving your spine in an uneconomical way, can be a precipitant. And the effect is cumulative, so both minor and major leaks can add up to tilt the balance of the cycle of pain. The lead domino. This is a lot of the time that if you tweak your back, it isn't really the injury. Perhaps you've spent years lining up these dominoes, and this was just the final flick to set things off. And we have a tendency to ascribe all kinds of meaning and things to overanalyze the specific trigger. And we don't look at all the other dominoes that we've lined up. To add insult to injury, pardon the pun, uh, it is often doing the most innocuous task. 
So I remember doing 200 kilo deadlifts for five by five a few years ago. And then I slept funny that night and put my back out. And it's like, I was fine coming out of there and it just seemed to be, so it's like surviving the twin tower attacks. And then you, you step out of the building and you get hit by a bus. Makes you feel like a bit of a plonker when you're doing something innocuous and it sets everything off. Funnily enough, I actually got a text from Chris today, which said that he tweaked his back. How did it happen, Chris? Moving a box at work. That's what makes it feel more silly, that I train hard, work on mobility, to be injured and defeated by a fucking box. Postural hangover from being sat on planes for ages. QLT was already irritated for some training, then 24 hours on a plane and 24 hours in bed. Ping. Still feeling fragile. Not good. Chronic back pain tends to cause hip extension of the hamstrings and subsequent back extension using the spine extensors, ex extensors creating unnecessary crushing loads. Gluteal muscle reintegration helps to unload the back. That's from Stu McGill. Ties into this spinal capacity issue. And his data shows that flexion rotation movements were the worst offenders of disc damage. Twisty sit-ups, anyone? His treatment and exercise plans revolve around removing the offending exercise triggers, then identifying and eliminating leaks to spinal capacity, moving on to corrective exercise, rebuilding spinal endurance, stiffness and stability, ingraining new movement patterns, safely loading those new movement patterns, and then returning to the sport with that improved pattern. I loved this because there's finally a method to get back to functioning as I was. Before we go on, perpetuating factors. So what are these kind of improved patterns that he's talking about? Well, the goal is to develop and to adopt the muscular patterns of somebody who is pain-free, kind of like fake it till you make it. Back pain sufferers, even people who've had a history of back pain and no longer in pain, have observably different and distinct muscle activation patterns to those without back pain. Ironically, if you have back pain, you likely use your spinal erectors more in day-to-day -day tasks than non-sufferers. And the hips get lazy. So in a phenomenon that is beautifully named gluteal amnesia, the corollary is true for non-sufferers. So there's more hip activation and less back activation. Yep, I said it. So those with back pain are lumbar dominant in their movement. Those without back pain are hip dominant. While not everybody agrees with McGill, there is a process informed by a mind-bogglingly huge amount of data in his complex lab and cohort studies with athletes to arrive at his conclusions, which includes some really interesting links. First of all, flexibility is actually correlated with back pain. Secondly, maximum strength is not protective of back pain. Spinal endurance is protective and the ability to rapidly generate core stiffness. Finally, gluteal amnesia is and overactive spinal erectors is present in those with back pain and the reverse for non-sufferers. So hang on, did, did I just say that strength is not protective of back pain? Well, rustle my jimmies. You mean all the T Nation hype was wrong? I thought that I was bulletproofing myself all these years by squatting and deadlifting. Turns out it's not as simple as that. There probably is some protective effect from lifting weights, but this is most likely offset by the fact that you're lifting four times a week, only to spend the rest of your day with poor spinal habits slouched in that office chair. You maybe got imbalanced training programs. 
If your technique or leverages are unfavorable, then deadlifting might be worsening the problem. Max strength style lifting has been shown to functionally repurpose muscles in the spine from oxidative endurance style fibers to glycolytic fast twitch fibers. This is great for letting you snatch more, but not so good for minimizing your risk of back injury. Weekend warrior syndrome is a particularly big factor and someone who is sedentary for most of the week is then spaced out, who has spaced out intense exercise is at high risk. So when you account for the above, you can see why posture is often unfairly blamed. Posture can often be the effect rather than the cause, and there are distinct benefits to improving it that I cover in Posture 101. Check that out on the channel or on the website. So that's it for mechanical back pain. How about psychosocial causes? This is the next piece of the puzzle, and it is often seen as the woo-woo, easy-to-dismiss side of back pain. And it becomes less easy to dismiss when you see that the back, the mechanical approach does not fully explain pain. Two people that have similar movement patterns could sustain the same precipitating injury and yet have different outcomes because of the way that they process their pain. Many people who are pain-free will show some level of disc bulge or spinal abnormalities when they're scanned. So if you have chronic back pain and you get a scan, it's easy to misattribute your pain to the incidental quirks of your anatomy. We need to be careful not to spot a disc bulge and immediately assume that that's because of the pain. Oh, look, there's some tissue damage there. Right, case closed. Not so fast, bozo. I've been wanting to use that phrase for so long. Um, if the patient is experiencing pain at a different nerve root level to the distribution the nerve root distribution level to the level of their bulge, then the bulge alone can't possibly explain the pain symptoms. And the data often finds that there is poor or no correlation between the number of abnormalities on an x-ray and the clinical symptoms that the patient is experiencing for radiculopathy, degenerative osteoarthritis, transitional vertebra, spinal bifida occulta, and spondylolysis. Often this makes the patient also feel worse about their injury. We need to be aware of this. I constantly see this with my patients. So if you have an anxious or a catastrophizing personality and you're shown imaging abnormalities or you're given a label to validate your pain, it can be detrimental in some people. Pete O'Sullivan, otherwise known as Sideshow Bob, um, works with people to help overcome this label. And he's got a lot of great things to say, so I'll, I'll link to his video in the website. The key point is that by over-imaging people and trying to find this 1-5% to 5 of people that do have structural origin back pain, we create a pain cycle in people who would otherwise have been fine. It's the type 1 error. Being told that you're pregnant when you're just fat. From John Sarno. I've never seen a patient with pain in the neck, shoulders, back or buttocks who didn't believe that the pain was due to an injury brought on by physical activity. The idea that pain means injury or damage is deeply ingrained in the American consciousness. Of course, if pain starts while one is engaged in physical activity, it is difficult not to attribute the pain to the activity. But this is often deceiving. The pervasive concept of vulnerability of the back, ease of injury, is nothing less than a medical catastrophe for the American public which has now shown an army of semi-disabled men and women whose lives 
are significantly restricted by the fear of doing damage or bringing on the dread dreaded pain again. One often hears, I'm afraid of hurting myself again, so I'm going to be very careful of what I do. In good faith, this idea has been fostered by the medical profession and other healers for years. It has been assumed that neck, shoulder, back and buttock pain is due to the injury of the disease of the spine and the associated structures or incompetence of the muscles and ligaments without scientific validation of these diagnostic concepts. Ideas about vulnerability of the back to a large extent are based on the diagnoses that practitioners make. Words like herniation, degeneration, deterioration, disintegration, these are constantly used to describe the lower back and provoke fear and provide a ready explanation for the injury and the attack of excruciating pain. If the structural diagnoses are correct, something happened to the spine during the last evolutionary eye blink that has begun to fall apart. This idea is a, one of the great impediments in the way of recovery, and it must be resolved in the patient's mind or the pain will persist. So there's the first big psychological problem. End quote, by the way, this is me speaking again. So um, it's the idea that I'm broken, the readily accepted identity change that then comes with receiving a diagnosis. And then the precipitant, the altered movement habits that arise as the result of this change in identity. You've seen that people with back pain tend to overuse their spinal erectors and spinal muscles compared to their hips. Another observed feature in the way that people with back pain move is antalgic behaviour. So if you've got to reach to the top cupboard and get a tin of beans, a pain-free person wouldn't give it a second thought. They're loose, their breathing pattern remains normal, they move smoothly. But when you're in pain, you probably move a bit more like this guy. Combine this antalgic behaviour with pain, anxiety, feelings of catastrophe, and it's not a good recipe. This mixture is enough to prolong back pain, which could have self-resolved, and it turns it into a chronic problem. We end up with oversensitization of tissues and increased threat perception. This happens even at a pain receptor level, where you have an increased density of alpha and gamma receptors in the spine so that normal stimuli to just regular spinal positional changes are interpreted by the central nervous system as pain, even in the absence of tissue damage or once tissue damage has recovered. Fortunately, this cycle can be interrupted and the perpetuance can be reversed. Many people have had success with this approach alone. So now you've taken the red and the blue pill before we go on, we need to discuss the mechanical and the psychosocial causes. We, we have discussed them, sorry. Do not fall into the trap of thinking that your pain is simply one or the other. Our minds want certainty. So maybe you've decided already the existence of normal abnormalities on imaging has led to experts jumping to the conclusion that there is no such thing as tissue damage causing pain. Do we even have tissue? Is the spine a myth? We all just imagined creatures in a test tube. If you think holistically, think that this is exactly how experts have jumped into fiercely defended camps of oversimplified models. Keep your cup empty, wise one. You're about to see how this all fits together. So here's what I've done to come to the recovery point where I've eventually got out of back pain. First thing was I identified some clear causes and perpetuance in my own case. So there's competitive powerlifting and gymnastics creating the perfect storm for a disc herniation, according to Dr. McGill, because imagine you've 
got a piece of spine that you're constantly bending back and forth, or a piece of plastic, and then you subject it to compressive loading. I've got a family history of pain, uh, infection and inflammatory triggers, unfavorable anthropometry. I've got a long torso, narrow waist with long femurs, so there's increased shear on the lower back, poor scapular mobility combined with heavy overhead pressing, uh, which results in an arching of the lower back and more force going through L5 and S1. I've got basically non-existent lumbar spine range of motion, so the upper back tends to take the flak during deadlifts. An injury is most likely to occur at a point where the spine goes from an immobile section to a mobile segment, hence L5-S1 being a very common source of injury because that's where we go from the usually mobile lumbar spine to the fused sacral spine. Here's a picture of me deadlifting 240 kilos after being told that I have weak abs. It's all in your head, is what they said. Couldn't possibly be, be anything to do with the fact that you're sitting at a desk all day and then trying to pick up 240 kilos. While I adopted antalgic pain avoidant behavior during my flare-ups, fortunately I didn't have many psychological risk factors and I didn't fall into the cycle of catastrophizing. So when the flare-ups came, they tended to improve, but then I was just triggering the pain again and again with the loading of the spine and training through the pain. No pain, no gain, stupidly. So perhaps this sounds like you. Maybe this is something you've gone through yourself, but by following the method below, I've been able to bring myself out of pain and I've had no major flare-ups for two or three years and my day-to-day -day pain is basically negligible. So I'm back to doing fun activities like this. I'm confident that you can achieve a good result as well, but I'm gonna be straight with you. The reason that you likely won't succeed with my recommendations here is not because of your back, but because of your ego. The movements here are boring and you're gonna to have to stop picking the scab. This can be the hardest part if you are a die-hard bobby dilder or pifty wifter. Um, you are gonna be really wanting to get back into training as soon as possible. And you need to make the conscious choice right now. Do you want to heal from your back or do you want to continue limping along out of gains FOMO and trying to train through this? Make that decision today. And before starting, obviously, you need to see your doctor rule out dangerous causes. So before trying to manage this yourself, you need to rule out any of the red flags, which would be trauma, unexplained weight loss, neurological symptoms. If you're over 50, if you've had a fever associated with the back pain, if you're an IV drug user, if you've used steroids in the past, so corticosteroids or anabolic steroids, and if you have a history of cancer. Then if you do get scanned, take your imaging results with a pinch of salt. Listen to your doctor, and if you're feeling anxious, just tell them about it, ask for their perspective. If you know anyone that's, or if you know that you're prone to catastrophizing, don't obsess over the findings. Look onwards and upwards to recovery and put your energy into that instead. So in terms of making sure that you check out the red flags, for example, I had focal neurological signs, loss of sensory and motor function of the leg. That warrants medical review rather than trying to fix this yourself at home. So with that said, here is your ladder of success. So we have step one, heal and recover. Move up to step two, that's where you start to remove the triggers, start the rehab process, mobilize, strengthen. Step three, 
look for alternative movements, repattern, phased return, and find success. And step four, dominate. So step one, this is the acute phase. You've just pulled something. You, here you need to stop and rest. The primary goal is reducing spasm. So analgesia as needed, hydrate, relax, don't be an idiot. And McGill recommends a brisk walk with lots of arm swing and wearing a 10 pound loaded backpack to help you gre grease the groove in your back in a coordinated, low impact way. The first thing you should do in the acute phase is begin a lying relaxation practice. Most people skip this because they don't feel like it's relevant and it sounds boring. So I'm aware of that. And I think without you being sold on this, you're also unlikely to stick to it. So here are some of the benefits. One, you can gain a conscious control over your parasympathetic nervous system. You overcome spasm faster that way. Two, you feel more relaxed throughout the day. Three, the more you develop the skill of no unnecessary tension, then you become less fatigued. You're no longer expending energy on neurotic muscular tightness. Four, the more you do this practice, the more you see that it isn't boring at all. There is a whole internal world of scintillating activity for you to explore once you get into this practice. Link to the audio is included in the show notes or in the article and I would recommend listening to this every day at some point to unwind your amped up nervous system and soon you'll start to break the cycle of hypersensitization and threat perception. Now that you've done that and that you can consciously relax your back at rest, it's time to move up the ladder with some breathing drills in certain positions. So the first thing is this. This is putting a pillow between your legs lying on your back with your legs elevated to flatten the spine and do 20 deep, slow breaths. What you can also do optionally is use a ball to loosen up some of the tight spots if there's a focal point. Next is the cat camel drill. This is from Tony Gentlecore. And this is where you alternate rounding and extending the spine with coordinated breathing when you're sat on all fours. Finally, once the spasm is resolved, mostly, you can try this from Donnie Thompson, which is a band decompression. And it's a way to move the hips around and wiggle them under a decompressed load. Step two, this is where we rehab, remove the triggers, mobilize and strengthen. Remember I said, stop picking the scab. We had an agreement. So once you've made this commitment, keep the goal the goal. Resist your temptation to try for a max deadlift as soon as you see a smidgen of improvement. I stopped deadlifting and squatting entirely and in hindsight if I'd made this choice earlier I would have shaved years off my recovery time. Instead I had to make that choice because I was forced to. Next identify your weaknesses. So you might be aware of them already but it's worth exploring this with a good physiotherapist or a sports massage therapist to identify your issues. So where are you personally immobile? Where are you weak? If you're like me and most lifters, you probably have poor thoracic and scapular mobility and you're probably not using your glutes to their full potential. Dan Ogborn notes that his weak hip extensors were the root of his back rounding in the deadlift and that was causing his thoracic spine to round. He said that rounding of his upper back was simply a strategy to move the mechanical advantage of the hip and lower back 
to compensate for a deficient gluten hamstring strength and, and lower back injury. So you need to exercise some judgment about what it is that you personally need. And this will likely need some assessment and customization. Then get to work with strengthening and mobilizing as a daily routine. Listen to your body and be guided by feel. If any drills hurt or make it worse, then stop. No pain, no gain does not apply here. So I've got a non-exhaustive list of ideas to get you started here. But remember, it's not about the magic exercise. It's about following the principles of the ladder and allowing yourself to heal and repattern. So here are some things that I've done to loosen a globally stiff spine. This is also from Tony Gentlecore. Deep breathing into flexion, holding onto the side of a rack or something. And this just helps to kind of spring clean some of the dusty parts of the spine that you've not been used to inhabiting. Then this is his mobile uh, range from Elliot Hulse to regain some range across the whole spine. Be careful with this one. We've got the sumo rotation from Kit Lachlan from his book, Overcome Back Pain, absolute compendium, really worth reading. Um, with these, you want to really breathe into the movement, breathe deeply. You almost, although your lungs only extend to here, imagine that they fill up the whole of your back and that you're breathing into that area. Here's a nice partner assisted side stretch. You can get a partner to support the rest of your spine so that you feel safe in that position. And then there's the Jefferson curl. This is really to try and regain control of the smaller muscles in your back and learn to move the whole spine rather than hinge across gross sections of the spine. For me, it turns out that doing loaded flexion was not a good idea and I shouldn't have pushed that because my disc prolapse was posterolateral, it was pushing backwards. And so that's likely to worsen things. And the Jefferson curl is already a controversial drill because people try to load it too heavy and too quickly. My mistake was going gung-ho with these drills rather than gently coaxing my spine into moving and not just sticking to a empty broomstick. Remember with this stuff, the goal is not to force new range, but it's to coax the spine to move normally and reclaim its lost pain-free range. Next, wake your lazy ass up. So this is for gluteal amnesia and spinal stability. And these are the Stu McGill Big Three. These are my keystone habit. And it's known as the Big Three for a reason. Most people will benefit from these three movements. And the goal here is to restore a coordinated ability to generate stiffness in the spine and wake up the hips. Reps are less important than total quality of movement. And Lane Norton does a great overview of the, of the movements there, so I'm going to leave that to him. I'll put the link in the article. And doing the big three is challenging because it's boring and you don't get Instagram points for it. But persist. You're doing this for you. Next, we have the foundation series. So this is more challenging than the, than the big three, but it's the same purpose. It's to regain hip activation and it's really a big Ben Tower alarm clock for sleepy hips. Give it a try, there's a video walkthrough. It's about 10 minutes long and it's tough. So step three, now we are finding alternative movements, repatterning and starting your phased return, finding success. Hopefully by this point, you're out of pain and the next challenge is reintroducing overload without overstepping your capacity. 
finding pain-free exercise substitutions, being aware not to suddenly ditch the rehab that got you here so far, keeping your ego in check, and finding success. Rather than picking the scab, rather than looking for what hurts, this is about finding movements that you can do pain-free. And we're at the inflection point here. We're going from injured to baseline, and soon to become stronger than ever. Work with your coach to figure out how you can progressively overload your pain-free range. Stick with the rule of avoiding movements that aggravate your pain. And outside of the gym, the focus is on spinal hygiene, the concept of good movement quality. If you're prone to just melting into your chair at work, consider a lumbar support, like the one that I'm using here. If you can see that. If you're listening on iTunes, you will not be able to see that, so go on YouTube and have a look. Um, and take your new hip activation into your day-to-day movements. You're always practicing something, consciously or not. So create these new movement habits that now match the muscular activation patterns of somebody who is pain-free. Finally, step four, dominate. You've made it. So this is really about you deciding on the cost benefit of your previous training program. Many of Stu McGill's patients have been able to return, compete, and hit PBs in powerlifting. For me, I've been there and done that with competitive powerlifting. I don't see the utility in continuing to push heavy deadlifts and just load my structures more and more. I had the wake-up call that I needed, that trying to squeeze out an extra 2.5 kilos a year while I trained through pain and losing function of my leg just isn't worthwhile for me. Maybe it's different for you, but considering the diminishing returns that you get from training goals, do I still recommend that others lift? Yeah, absolutely. Like, you stand to gain so much strength, physique, confidence, and health, going from zero to twice body weight squat. But you gain less of that going from twice body weight to three times body weight. And then you spend the next five years going from three times body weight to 3.1 times body weight. Not so much, not really worth it. So for most, there is more satisfaction in using this as a chance to say, have I hit the top of my game in this particular area? And is it better for me if I switch training goal and move forward? But you do you. So there we are. That is the four step process to improving your back pain. I'm at stage three right now. I resisted doing the rehab exercises and I trained through injury for too long. I ignored the pain and I set myself back several years. And I hope that this can prevent you from, from or help you to avoid making those same mistakes and that you can become a pain-free propane athlete very soon. As always, if you want personal guidance with anything we've mentioned in the article or um, anything else that we discuss on this channel, then please get in touch to see if we have any coaching spots available and see how we can best help you. I'll also include some further reading and some recommended books and articles, podcasts and things in the article as well. All right, speak soon.